All right. Well, good morning, Wheaton Bible Church. I want you to know that one of the perks of my job, one of the things I, I really like is that authors periodically send me books that they have just written. Sometimes they're friends of mine or, or, or people I've gotten to know over the years. Other times it's a, a ministry or a marketing thing, and I, and I love getting these books. And in the last 10 days, I've received a book, and I've just started to kind of work my way through it, at least on the front end. And as I was reading, I learned something I didn't realize. Every year, four or five people die taking pictures of the Grand Canyon. Now, you thought I was reading deep, systematic theology. But that's horrible when you think about it. I mean, these people are often with family or friends, and they're there, and they're caught up in the wonder and the grandeur of the Grand Canyon, and what happens is they ignore the warning signs. They get too close to the edge in order to get that picture and then they go over. Four, five people a year. They call it overly zealous photographic endeavors. Now in the same way, in the kingdom of God, we have this crazy tendency to ignore Jesus, to ignore the glory of Jesus that we saw revealed in the transfiguration last week in our section in the Gospel of Mark. We have this tendency to ignore uh, the warning signs revealed in God's Word. And what happens is that becomes a killer mistake. In this same book, the author reminded me that just a couple of years ago in this little bitty town in Zanesville, Ohio, you probably remember this story. Uh, the, uh, the owner of a private exotic animal zoo one day suddenly opened all the cages, released all of his animals, all the wolves, all the leopards, all the lions and the tigers and the bears, released them, and then he took his own life. And what happened is suddenly in that little bitty town of Zanesville, Ohio, everything changed because the town was disrupted by the presence of other exotic, dangerous animals. Hey, Mom, there's a lion in our front yard. Can I go pet it? Or why is this bear hanging out around McDonald's? Now, if our study in the Gospel of Mark means anything, it means there is a, a presence of the divine other in our midst, and his name is Jesus. Uh, dangerous, yes, but infinite in his love and his compassion and his mercy and his grace as well. But while we would hardly ignore lions and tigers and bears, oh my, if they were on the prowl in our neighborhoods, we regularly ignore Jesus. I mean, we're busy. We're distracted. We've got things coming at us. And that is precisely the problem of the disciples in our passage today. So turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 9. We're going to pick it up in verse 14. What I want to do is I want to look at the story, walk our way through the story, then I want to draw a, 
a principle, and then I want to make a couple applications, three applications. So we're going to pick it up in Mark chapter 9 and verse 14. Now, when they came to the other disciples, now this is a reference to Jesus, Peter, James, and John, who had just been up on the mount where Jesus was transfigured. When they came to the other disciples, the other nine, they saw a large crowd around them and the teachers of the law arguing with them. As soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to greet him. What are you arguing with them about, Jesus asked. And a man in the crowd answered, Teacher, I brought you my son who is possessed by a spirit that would be a demonic spirit. And the spirit has robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth. He gnashes his teeth and he becomes rigid. I ask your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. They could not. Oh, unbelieving generation, Jesus replied, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. So they brought him. And when the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell to the ground, rolled around, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered, it has often thrown him into fire or water to kill him. I want you to note, and I don't want you to miss this, Satan is a murderer. He's out to destroy, he's out to kill this little boy. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can, said Jesus, everything is possible for him who believes. Now notice what's going on here. The father is consumed with his son's physical condition. Jesus shifts the conversation to the spiritual condition of the father. Then verse 24, immediately the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the evil spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, he said. I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. The spirit shrieked, convulsed him violently and came out. The boy looked so much like a corpse, so beat up, that many said he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand, lifted him to his feet, and he stood up. After Jesus had gone indoors, his disciples asked him privately, why? Why couldn't we drive it out? And he replied, this kind can come out only by prayer. They left that place and passed through Galilee. Jesus did not want anyone to know where they were because he was teaching his disciples. He did not want to be interrupted. He had to teach the disciples about making disciples. He said to them, the Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after three days he will rise. Jesus is predicting again his death and resurrection, but they did not understand what he meant, and they were afraid to ask him about it. Now, we got an incredible story here. I mean, an amazing story. But I want you to get the context or, or the setting to appreciate what's going on here. 
And what I want you to see is the contrast between the previous story and this story. In the previous 13 verses of Mark chapter 9, you have this cosmic light show. Jesus is transfigured and revealed in dazzling light. Go back to verse 2. And Jesus is up on the mountain. But then we come to verse 14 in our passage, and they move down the mountain to the valley below, and what, what do we have is sin and darkness and demonization and demon possession. So it's Jesus in glory in the first 13 verses and a boy in misery beginning in verse 14. The disciples in unbelief. A generation in unbelief. So we have this contrast between the divine glorified presence and the mayhem of a sinful fallen world. By the way, for you art lovers, this contrast is so vivid that it captured the imagination of one of the world's great painters, 16th century Raphael, who was a contemporary of Leonardo da Vinci and Michelangelo, these Italian Renaissance masters. And this passage, this contrast, so captured Raphael's imagination that not only did it become his most famous, his greatest work, it has become one of the finest, greatest pieces of art in all of history. Now look at it. Notice there's two halves. On the top, we have the transfiguration. The first 13 verses, Jesus is surrounded by Elijah and Moses. The disciples, if you can see them, are prostrate before. But then you come down, and the second half of this painting, the bottom half of this painting, is darkness. It's the valley below. It pictures life in this sinful fallen world. And there is this big debate brewing over this demonized boy. Now let's do a close-up. Let's go to the second one. This is the bottom half. The boy is on the right. His arms are like this. You can see his eyes are rolled back. He's clearly demon-possessed. And there's this mayhem. It's life in a sinful fallen world. Now Raphael's point is that both the top and the bottom are real and Jesus is present in both now with that contrast that gives us the setting let's look at our passage and if you go back to the beginning what you discover is as Jesus and the three come down the mountain they walk right into this argument this argument between the teachers of the law and the remaining nine disciples over the failure of the nine to cast out this demon and the boy. As the father says, they could not do it. Couldn't do it. Now think for a minute about what's going on here. You have a hurting, heartbroken father whose hopes have been dashed in a million pieces. Now, Mark does not tell us anything about the identity of the demon. But he gives us a whole lot of information on the consequences of this boy's demon possession. He can't speak because a little later, Jesus will call the, the spirit deaf and mute. The boy probably couldn't hear either. He had epileptic-like seizures. 
and he had regularly been burned and almost drowned, scars all over his body. Few children, few families in Israel experienced a more miserable existence. Now, hoping, hoping that Jesus and his disciples uh, could cure this little boy based on what he had heard, the reports he had heard, this father risked taking his son out into public so he can be healed. And the disciples don't deliver. And this is a big deal. Because if you go back just three chapters to Mark chapter 6 and verse 7, Jesus gives the disciples complete and total authority to cast out demons. And six verses later in Mark chapter 6 and verse 13, we are told that the disciples are casting out many demons. But here... In Mark chapter 9, when we come to this precious little boy, they can't do it. And it's their fault. And everything in this passage tells us it's significant spiritual failure on the part of these nine disciples. And what happens? Well, as a result the Jewish teachers of the law are having a field day. You guys aren't anything special. Jesus, he's not anything special. You're all a bunch of phonies. So right on the heels of the glory of Jesus Christ, the pre-incarnate glory of Jesus Christ being revealed on the mountain, you've got a heartbroken, desperate father. A demonized son on the edge of death. You've got impotent, embarrassed, confused, unbelieving disciples and arrogant, hostile Jewish leaders who are spewing condemnation. The picture here is very dark. It's a sinful, fallen world we live in. This is our world. And what is Jesus' response? Well, look at verse 19. Three words. Oh, unbelieving generation. Jesus says the problem is a lack of faith. An unbelieving generation refers to everyone. The Father, I want to suggest, is unbelieving. I mean, if he had lived a life of faith, if he had been a man who over the years had walked humbly before God, if he had been a man like Job who regularly prayed for his children, if he had been a man who taught his children the word of God, if he had been the type of father God wants us to be as fathers, do you really think it would have gotten this bad? I don't. Don't you think this father, if he had been a godly, believing man, could have stood on the authority of God's word and based on the authority of God's word, commanded the demon to leave? This father isn't innocent. When Jesus says, oh, unbelieving generation, he's talking about the father. But he's also talking about the disciples. 
There's a kingdom principle that the disciples in this passage on spiritual failure, ministry failure, haven't learned. And the principle is you can't do the work of Jesus absent or without the power of Jesus. You just can't have one without the other. I mean, think about your phone. Just as your phone over time has no power unless you repeatedly and continually plug it into its power source, we have no spiritual power unless we are linked and connected and locked in to our power source, which is Jesus. And here the disciples apparently disconnected. They're trying to do this on their own. And you can't do kingdom work without kingdom power. You can't do Jesus' work without uh, Jesus' power. So the disciples are also unbelieving. But so are the religious leaders. Massive unbelief on their part. You could not tell these guys anything. Their hearts were so hardened. They were walking know-it-alls, spiritual know-it-alls that were totally hollow and empty on the inside. And because Jesus didn't fit their politics and Jesus didn't fit their paradigm, they rejected him. A unbelieving generation. And Jesus is referring to everyone. He's referring to the devastated father. He's referring to the uh, defeated disciples. He's referring to the defiant uh, scribes, the teachers of the law. And by the way, don't make the mistake of, of, of reading this and thinking, you know, this demon stuff, uh, I don't think so. Uh, don't, don't read this and, and, and allow yourself to think this is religious hocus pocus from a pre-scientific first century world. No, man, I want you to know that Satan is alive and well, but the way he works in a culture like ours 2,000 years later is going to be different than how he worked in the first century world or how he's working in different parts of the developing world today. So, for example, as, as another guy pointed out, let's say somebody from the first century to plop down and land here in, in our terrain here in Chicago, and he might, he might look around at, after being here for a while and say, you know what, you guys don't realize this, but your culture is much more demonically overt than ours. And you would say, well, well, how in the world is that? And, and he would say, well, Satan has taken his stuff out of the category of religion and dropped it in the category of entertainment. And he's gotten you to pay for it. And you say, well, well, well wait a minute, those are just movies. They're video games, songs. And your first century of a friend would say, now hold on. Those are sermons with pictures. Sermons with words set to music. And Satan inspires both. Now do not misunderstand, okay? I want you to hear me in this. I am not against movies, video games, or books. I am just warning you 
that Satan is alive and well today, and he's out to destroy you just as he was out to destroy this boy in the first century, and he will do anything he can to keep you, your family, and our culture in unbelief. And if it's entertainment, so be it. Please, please do not miss. He tried to kill this boy. And parents, he'll try to kill your children. He'll try to kill you. Now let's go back to our story. I want you to look at what happens next. In in verse 20, we are told the boy is brought to Jesus. Uh, Can you imagine um, what this boy must have looked like? How beat up. And then we have this uh, conversation after the, the demon revolts, sensing Jesus' presence. And then we have this conversation between the Father and Jesus. And then we're told, beginning in verse 25 through verse 27, that Jesus says the word and the demon is cast out. It's an exorcism. This is a real life exorcism. And Jesus lifts the boy up. Luke tells us he hands the boy back to his father. Dad. Dad. My son. My son. And what we have here, by the way, is is a picture of what the gospel does when we believe in Jesus. It takes us from the clutches of Satan, from death itself, and makes us alive in Jesus Christ, righteous and forgiven. And so what we see in this passage is no matter how great the evil, how difficult the demonic, how discouraging the situation Jesus has the power to completely and totally overcome every ounce of darkness. And what we have is an incredible display of Jesus' compassion on the one hand and his power on the other. But we cannot stop there because there's more to what's going on here. Yes, this is a miracle story about the rescuing power of Jesus to save us from death and demons. But this is also a story about the importance of faith. Of walking by faith. Living by faith in the life of a a, a disciple. Our first clue, if you go back, is in verse 19, where Jesus uses this word when he says, Oh, unbelieving generation. He's talking about the lack of faith. And then Mark, alone of the other gospel writers, has this conversation between Jesus and the Father. And on three different times, in just those couple of verses, the word faith appears. And then finally, when we come to the conclusion of this story, and the disciples are alone with Jesus, and they ask, why couldn't we do this? Why couldn't we drive this thing out? What would we do wrong? And Jesus says, this kind only comes out by prayer. Jesus is again talking about faith. Because prayer is the verbal expression of faith. Faith prays like sparks fly upward. 
Believing people pray. Praying people believe. Now I point all this out because in our passage we come to a key principle of the spiritual life that we dare not miss, that frankly the disciples had missed. The disciples aren't there yet. And the principle, as I stated, the first part of it is you can't do the work of Jesus apart from the power of Jesus. You can't do Jesus' work without Jesus' power. But, and here we put it together, you won't experience the power of Jesus apart from faith in Jesus. You will not. And the way you'll know your faith is real is by the quality of of your prayer life. This kind only come out by prayer. There is no ministry, there is no kingdom ministry. Now there's all sorts of activity, there's all sorts of church attendance, there's all sorts of that kind of stuff, but there is no kingdom ministry where there is no power, and there's no power where there is no prayer, and there is no prayer where there is no faith. These disciples were prayerless because they were faithless. They were unbelieving believers. At this point, they had not come to the end of themselves. They didn't own they didn't get their complete and total bankruptcy before a perfect and holy God. They still thought there was something inherent in them, something because of them that made them sufficient or competent. And they failed to see their need to continually depend upon Jesus, to, to lean into Jesus, to cast them Selves upon the glorious presence of Jesus. I mean, here in this passage, Jesus is gone. He's up on the mountain when this thing unfolds. So these nine disciples, they can't see Jesus. And apparently they forget about him. They ignored the warnings, Jesus' repeated warnings about unbelief, and they go right over the edge. Right over the edge here. Uh, they were busy, they were stressed, they were under pressure. Their life was full, but they were not, they were not paying attention spiritually. And they make a killer mistake now let me move on three applications number one and I want to straight say this as strongly as I possibly can it is impossible it is impossible to be a disciple without faith it's always either faith or failure faith or failure this story is a story of spiritual failure and this story illustrates the principle that will come later in the New Testament in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Without faith, uh, you ain't pleasing God. Now, now, because this issue of faith is so central to this passage, I want you to 
see how Matthew deals with it in some wonderful verses in Matthew's account of this passage, the parallel passage. So turn back about 25 pages to Matthew chapter 17 and verse 29. I'm sorry, Matthew chapter 17 and verse 19. Same story, Matthew's account. We read beginning in verse 19, Then the disciples came to Jesus in private and asked him, Why couldn't we drive it out? And notice what Jesus says, Because you have so little faith. I tell you the truth, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. Nothing, nothing, nothing will be impossible for you if you believe. So in Matthew, the answer Jesus gives to the disciples' questions, why couldn't we cast it out, is you have so little faith. In our passage, in Mark's account, the answer Jesus gives is because you have so little prayer. Now those answers are not contradictory, they are complementary. Because faith and prayer are two sides of the same coin. Uh, faith prays and and. and Prayers rooted in uh, believing. And so what we have is each gospel writer recording a, a piece of the larger teaching of Jesus at this moment. And I love what Matthew gives us because he makes it clear that this passage is a passage about faith or the lack of faith in, in the life of a disciple in our lives. Now what is faith? Faith is dependence. Faith, according to Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 1, is a conviction of not, things not seen and the assurance of things hoped for. Faith, now, now follow me in this, sets no limits on God's power and makes no demands on God's will. Faith, biblical faith, no limits, no demands. It's Jesus in Gethsemane. Take this cup from me. Father, you can do anything. But not my will. Thy will be done. No limits, no demands. I'm in submission to you. And here in Matthew chapter 17, Jesus is highlighting, Matthew has Jesus highlighting the, the no limits piece. Jesus is saying faith in a limitless God is the key that unlocks the door to the kingdom of God. And it's there for the taking. I love these verses in Matthew. So what we see in this account, whether it's Matthew, Mark, or Luke, is that it's faith that activates discipleship, or better, it's faith that activates disciple-making. And so the spiritual life, your spiritual life right now today has nothing to do with your status. It has nothing to do with your education. It has nothing to do with your finances. It has nothing to do with your circumstances. It has everything to do with your faith. And it's not the quantity of faith. As little as a mustard seed. It's the presence of faith. If you will, it's the quality of faith. 
And power, I mean kingdom power. Power in your home. We're talking your marriage. We're talking the marketplace. We're talking where you live life so that you can live for Christ and lift up Christ. That is a function of faith. And friends, I want you to know, based on uh, the testimony of Jesus, that God wants to use you. God wants to change the world through you. God wants to make you high-impact, low-maintenance people. Parents, that's what we want our kids to become. High-impact, low-maintenance God wants you to be this high-impact, low-maintenance person. He wants to give you a joy, a, a, a peace, a sense of significance beyond your wildest dreams. But what holds you back? Your lack of faith. And that's the problem of the disciples in our passage. And so let me say to you, Christian, it, 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 is not, it is not that you are, are saved by faith and then you are sanctified, a fancy word for made like Christ. You grow in Christ by works. It's not that you're saved by faith and then you are made like Christ by works. Ministry, family, marriage, life, kingdom isn't ultimately about what you must do. It's about you resting and believing and apprehending all that God has done for you in Jesus Christ. It's about daily surrender and trust. And there's no power apart from faith. Now go back to Mark chapter 9 and let's go on to the second application. I want you to look at verse 24 in Mark's account. Mark chapter 9 and verse 24. Where this father, this unbelievably agonizing father who has been beat up for years says... I do believe, but help my unbelief. And the application I want to make is our faith will always be uneven. Your faith, my faith, always uneven. We will always be a mixed bag of belief and doubt. And we'll have days where we're believing, and then we'll have days where we're not believing. And we'll believe uh, God about this, but not believe God about that. And sometimes we believe, and sometimes, man, it's less so. And we're just like the Father. I believe, help my unbelief. And the Father says what the disciples illustrate here. We are humans. We're not machines. We're a sin-polluted mix of faith and doubt. Security, insecurity. Courage, fear. Rationality, irrationality. Sinner, Child of grace. I say this because I want you to understand doubt and faith are not mutually exclusive. They're not. I believe. Help my unbelief. I mean, one day we can trust God for our kids, but we can't trust God for our retirement. And the next day we can trust God for our retirement, but we can't trust Him for our kids. That's the way we are. Our faith and our experience will be uneven. 
And one of the reasons God has given us the poetry in the Old Testament, I mean the Psalms, Ecclesiastics, Lamentations, and Job, is to show us that God understands the coexistence of faith on the one hand and nagging questions on the other. And to take one person from church history, Martin Luther, who turned the world upside down, spent his entire life battling doubt and depression. Uh, There's a tremendous mystery with the kingdom of God, a tremendous mystery with Jesus, a tremendous mystery uh, in walking uh, by faith. And frankly, we don't appreciate the mystery enough. Your doubts, your frustrations, your disappointments, your, your questions are not, are not a sign of atheism. As much as a sign of honesty and living in a sinful, fallen world where horrible things happen like demon-possessed little boys. Third, Faith prays. This kind only come out by prayer. Like the disciples, we have this crazy tendency to make a bad situation worse by not praying. Don't do that. This kind can only come out by prayer. Prayer is a a little like fishing in in the sense we're reaching into something we can't see in order to grab on to something that we can see. And, And like fishing, there are brief moments of activity and then prolonged periods of inactivity. And what do we do in the inactivity? We keep praying. This kind will only come out by prayer. Now, maybe you're wrestling with direction in your life. You're facing a a, a big decision. Maybe you're in the midst of, or your family's in the midst of major spiritual warfare. And you see snippets of it here and snippets of it there. Uh, Maybe you're battling an addiction, gambling, alcohol. Uh, adultery, or pornography. Or, or maybe it's a, a, a conflict with a friend or, or your, your, your spouse or a, a co-worker or, or a neighbor. Uh, maybe it's out-of-control spending, out-of-control anger. This kind only comes out by prayer. But notice what Jesus doesn't say in verse 29. He doesn't say, I'm done with you guys. He doesn't say, I'm fed up with your prayerlessness. This is the last straw. Here's your pink slip. Jesus doesn't say that. Jesus doesn't give up on these disciples. I want you to see this in spite of their prayerlessness. And Jesus will never ever give up on you, child of God. 
Verse 29 is an illustration of grace. One of the great realizations of my life as a young Christian is that when I blow it, Jesus isn't going to fire me. Jesus isn't going to abandon me. Jesus isn't going to give up on me. Jesus isn't going to move on to other people with a whole lot more potential and a whole lot more ability because Jesus doesn't operate that way. Jesus does not say, I'm done with you. Jesus says this kind. will come out only by prayer. And in doing so, he invites the disciples to get back into the game and to pray. And then he goes on in the last couple of verses and announces, I'm going to carry you on my back because life ultimately isn't about what you do, it's about what I do, and I'm going to go to Jerusalem, I'm going to go to the cross, and I'm going to die in your place for your sins so that you can have life in spite of your unbelief and in spite of your lack of prayer. Let's pray. So, Father, as we come to a passage like this, we want to be changed. We want to be different. We want to hear you. That's why we're here today. And now, Father, as we worship you, we pray that you would continue to speak to us that we might live in a way that honors you. In Jesus' name, amen.